had a new winner in MotoGP after Aragon, but now we have a new double winner in MotoGP. Paco Bagnaia has done it again, this time by winning in Ducati's backyard at Misano, the race he led so well at last year, but he didn't nail it after slipping off 12 months ago. From pole position and a Ducati 1-2 in qualifying, he was about as good as weekend as they could have got in front of the boss Claudio Domenicali. I'm Toby Moody and joining me is Valentin Harunchi and Simon Patterson. Val, what's the first thing that comes into your mind of yesterday's race in Italy? Uh, the first thing that comes into my mind is that I'm freezing because heating doesn't work here in Moscow. But the second thing that comes into my mind is, I mean, it's it's really, really impressive from Peko, but in my book, the championship's still done. Simon. Uh, same as Val, championship's over. Too little, too late. You also have no heating? <laughs> I live in a van, Val. I live in a van. Yeah. Uh, yeah, championship's over. It's too little, too late from him. For me... It was the sporting gesture and the look on Quattararo's face when he was applauding Banyaya when he returned into Park Fermi. I'm going to go for a, a sporting kind of angle here. Yes, he's got a hand on the championship, but you don't see many sportsmen at world level hang around for so long because Banyaya took so long to get back to Park Fermi, and quite rightly so. And I just thought that was a real gentleman's gesture. Yeah, but... I mean, on, on the one hand, it's easier It's easier to be like that when you have a 48-point lead. It probably would be different if it was a bit closer. On the other hand, Fabio does genuinely seem to be that kind of, that kind of guy, that kind of bloke. He seems to just really relish and enjoy good motorcycle racing, and he seems to have a, a ton of friends in the paddock and get on well with most, most riders. So it's not, not really a big surprise. He's a... He's a really good ambassador for the sport, as is as is Pecco. There is a lot of the Valentino Rossi about uh, Fabio Quartararo, and and that extends to how he acts off the track as well as on the track. And that that was that was a Valentino Rossi move, and I'm not at all surprised we saw it from Fabio. Pecco Bagnaia has taken 50 points in just eight days uh, for Ducati. Uh, the start. I've looked at it as many times as I'm sure you guys have and as Race Control did. That's about as good as a start as you can ever get. He might have got a little bit lucky. He might have anticipated the start and went when he thought the lights were going to go out and had it work perfectly, which we've seen plenty of times before. It happens. Um, it's happened in MotoGP. Uh, people on my Twitter this morning keep referencing uh, Bottas at the Red Bull Ring in 2017 when he did the exact same thing. And, and I genuinely think that's what it maybe is. Maybe he anticipated the start. But what you need to look at, whenever you go and look at the slow motion video that's all over social media this morning, what it really dials down to is, yes, he moves while the lights are still lit, but they've started to dim, which means the button has been pushed. It doesn't matter if the light is still on. As long as it's starting to dim, someone's pushed the button. And it, at the end of the day, it's not when the light goes out. It's when the button to turn the light out is pushed that decides the start of the race. He got it absolutely to a hundredth of a second perfectly right, which essentially sums up the rest of the 40-something minutes he was on the racetrack for. Which is, which is why I think he maybe anticipated it, because the human body can react to a tenth of a second. So... Taking that and parking that just for a minute, though that first third of a lap, the first lap, he had, what, one second after the first lap, 
that's proper stuff. I mean, he was going to win the race full stop, I think, from there and then. The mental attitude he must have had, and then we saw he deserved everything. Yeah, he might, he, he could have been a lot more conservative at the start and still have the, the same outcome. It's not like the, the Ducati really needs to to nail its starts. Pecco, I think, has had a bit more trouble than Jack with starts over the season, but still, he was he was going to keep that lead into into turn one. It wasn't a, a perfect first lap and just, just a, a fantastic early stint, but it also owes a lot to the fact that uh, Miller retaliated so aggressively against Quartararo into turn three after Quartararo dived down the inside of, of, of turn one. Without that Miller move back, it's... I think it's a whole different race without that move. I think that move weirdly may have decided the the outcome of the of the race win, or at least the 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 late duel would have been a lot more back and forth than it ended up without that. So yeah, I I would love to know what if anything was said in the Ducati garage before those two went out on track. If they caught a little moment together. Um, if there was a, a second or two when there was no one else around, whether there was a look exchanged or a line said or whatever. But it is so clear that Jack Miller was working for his teammate yesterday. Um, and it, in, in the best of ways that a writer can work for his teammate as well, there was no team orders. No one told him to do it. He wasn't conceding places like we've seen Ducati do in the past. He just knew what he had to do and he did it. Um, and fair play to him for it. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it was a it was a good move to do regardless of his team status. He needed to be ahead of Fabio at that point in the race. He, he did what he could. I don't think he compromised his race in any meaningful way to help Pecco. But I do think that he saw Fabio and realized that this is a guy that it's worth uh, taking an extra risk against because it, it's also just good for Ducati to make his life as hard as possible. Ultimately, the championship impact, I think, is still fairly negligible, but it was, it was a good team play. All teams have a great family atmosphere, and when it's a really good family atmosphere, you can start to walk on water, and then you start to win races and win championships. And I'm sure that they've got that in Ducati. It's very passionate, it's very Italian, and all that stereotypical stuff. Uh, we don't know what's in Jack Miller's contract, we, but also he will see the bigger picture. His manager will see the bigger picture as well, and he will also see the the, the bigger picture yesterday, which was... Pecco was going to win the race or be second or third. Maybe Jack just knew it wasn't going to be my day. Ah, let's roll over to next time. I'll get payback. I'll get payback. Jack Jack said as much after the or before the race. Sorry, um, he said as much after qualifying on Saturday that he he joked that someone asked him if it wasn't a Jack race, what would he do? And he said, well, every race is a Jack race, but. Um, and essentially said, you know, Paco has the pace to win. I don't know if I necessarily do in the dry, so I'll see what I can do. And then after the race, I went and found uh, Paolo Ciabatti, Ducati boss. And he was gushing in his praise for Jack Miller, which after only a week ago hearing Davide Tardazzi, the other Ducati boss, hinting that maybe they'd have to make you know, Jack would have to make way for Jorge Martin coming up in 2023, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to then hear a, a, a reaffirmation of Ducati's loyalty to Jack is, um, yeah, it, it should make him rest a little bit easier about his future. However, let's just reiterate the fact that Pecco Bagnaia, it was, it was his race, literally as those lights, lights dimmed, not even went out, as you say, Simon. I just think it, that was, it was just... 
100% his race. I was a little bit nervous. He was in a similar kind of position 12 months ago. We didn't want to see him slip on a visor tear-off or a rogue fish that had landed on the racetrack or whatever Kaczynski's excuses would be. But it was his day. And actually, yes, he was emotional when he was on the cooling down lap, but he was a lot cooler because he just knew it was going to be his day rather than I finally got this monkey off, off my back, which is what he had done seven days earlier in Aragon. He's gone another step up. That confidence of, okay, one, ah, now two. How strong is he going to be? Y yeah. So I'm going to agree and disagree with you. Um, he has found something in the last few months. He has, it, it's like, you know, the, the, the old adage about you can make a fast racer stop crashing, but you can't make a slow racer go faster. He's learned how to stop crashing. It's clicked. Whatever it is that he needed in his head to click has clicked. And he is going to be very, very, very fast going forwards. But I think what we saw yesterday was that it wasn't as bolted on a Peco day as we thought it was going to be. Um, I think it was kind of marginal towards the end of whether or not Quattararo could have done something to stop him. And I, I genuinely do believe that Jack was the difference yesterday. I think that we would have had a very, very different, like you said, Val, very, very different final few laps had Bagnaya had Quattararo on his tail the whole race the way he had with Marquez the race before. Okay, disagreeing with myself going on from what you're saying it would have been a lot closer at the end had Quattararo taken the soft rear, not the medium rear, because I think that was his safe choice, Quattararo. Remember, the other two people on the podium had a hard front and a soft rear. He had, in second place on the Yamaha, a hard front and a medium rear. And that's why he kept looking at the tyres in Parc Ferme. Ah, could I have got away with the soft but I, I think the medium rear is what gave him that that late burst of being able to to catch Banya, and I think he needed some sort of grip advantage for the end if he, he was going to beat a Ducati in a last lap duel. If you're if you're in a similar grip situation to a Ducati, then the Ducati murders you in a straight line, basically. And I think to to stand a chance, Fabio needed something extra. And we would have seen how it played out if not for the for the Jack intervention, I suspect. So it's you know it's all. It's a moot point at this point, but I, I don't think it was a bad choice. But Quattararo in those early laps, he was quite ragged, I thought, when he was going on. And he was ragging it to try and keep up. And, of course, in Park for me, he said, I lost the front a couple of times. You don't often hear him say that. He was hanging it out. He was risking the race. He was risking... Not maybe not 25 points, but 20 points, 16 points. And then, of course, his championship lead could be now pick a figure 30, not 48. So... He was he was hanging it out. Um, medium tires are not going to be as good at the beginning of the race as a, as a soft rear. So you know swings and roundabouts. But he 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 didn't get away with it, Quattararo. Far from it. I got away with it because it didn't rain, Simon. I think that was the 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 big yes. getaway. If it had rained, he would have been on the back foot because we've seen the lottery races, as we can call them, the the flag to flag races. You know. So, uh, so yeah, but Pecco Bagnaia, what a boy. Quattararo, as I say, ragged at times. Um, a three-second disadvantage tumbled down to three-tenths. Another lap, could he have done it? Or Maybe. It did sort of look like there's, there was no really great opportunity to overtake Pecco and that he was having to push a little bit too hard to, to get within range. And ultimately, it was, it was the smart play to, to settle for second. I think if you look at 
if you were to chart Quartararo Championship win probability over Sunday, then I think the biggest uptick, or at least the biggest lack of a downtick, came when the race started and there was no rain. Because the rain could have very easily been a 2016, hell, maybe even 25-point swing. It could have been a genuine disaster. It's still, He would have still been championship favorite pretty healthily, but it would have... It would have looked a lot more precarious. I would not be surprised if he felt really liberated when he went out on the grid and it was not raining or it was minor precipitation in the air and nothing more than that. Especially whenever you consider that we have to come back to Misano in a month's time when there's a much greater chance of rain. Then we have to go to Valencia where there's a much greater chance of rain. We could still have, you know, three of the four remaining races could easily be wet because Austin can be hit or miss, although it's looking quite good at the minute out there. So who knows? Um, and yeah, you, you take your take your chances where you can get them. You take every point you can. 100 points still on the table with those four races remaining. We've got Cota, we've got Mizano, we've got Portugal, we've got Valencia. 48 points, the advantage of the Frenchman Quattararo ahead of, uh, of Paco Bagnaia. He can't quite wrap it up at the next race, but if all goes well, let's see how that one uh, that one that one all pans pans out. Um, do you think Banyaya is now gonna win these next couple of races? Do you think the form is on the up, or is it just these two races? I mean, it's difficult to predict about Cota. We haven't been there for so long. Obviously, Mazzano a given, but. What about this 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 Cota question mark? It's very difficult to predict what is going to happen at Cota because so many bikes have changed so much since the last time we went there. Um, it's been two years. There's been all sorts of ups and downs in the series since then. The Ducati's got better. The Honda's got worse. The Suzuki has stagnated. The Aprilia has turned into a really good bike that will really go well at Cota. Uh, when you look at its strengths under things like brake instability, um, I genuinely, I, I don't know who's going to win beyond the obvious Mark Marquez probably has to be the favourite line. Around the left-handed racetrack, yeah. Um, whilst the battle was going on with Bagnaia and Quattararo, Bastianini started fourth row of the grid and came through to get on the podium. A home race, born and bred, lives down the road. There was a moment when he passed the works to Catty of Jack Miller and Miller must have thought, oh, hell's teeth, what's going on here? But brilliant, his first time on the podium in MotoGP, 13th different podium rider in 2021 in the top class and all on a two-year-old Ducati. It was as if his psychological powers was making it quicker in a straight line with sheer horsepower, the way that he passed down the back straight. He did it not once on a Spagaro's Aprilia, but then he did it on Marc Marquez as well. Rec lap record pace with 10 laps to go. You know, speaking of your <sighs> of your uh, Miller comment, I did actually ask Miller what entered his mind when he saw the old Ducati pass him. And basically his answer was not massively, was that of surprise, but not massive enthusiasm, which is very understandable because you never want to be losing to an older spec bike in a, in a pretty straightforward race like this. Um, Enea was phenomenal, honestly. I think Enea has, has had a, a a pretty great rookie season that's just been unfortunately overshadowed by how good Jorge Martin has, has proven to be. But 
and I really probably should be on a factory spec Ducati next year, and it doesn't look like that's quite happening yet. And this particular result, I think, is 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 ramping up the pressure on Ducati to to figure out that it has a, a longer term plan for him because he is he is something special. And even without this weekend, honestly, the previous weekend was really good too. And Ea Bastianini is has a serious future in MotoGP, and I think this thought has now entered the mainstream but i think it was obvious from honestly maybe even from qatar one but certainly from aragon i went last night and like i said to find sabati and he said something really really interesting that i i had never i've never really heard um said before about the ducatis so they they have committed to building five bikes factory bikes next year he says they literally cannot build anymore they just can't do it. They don't have the resources. They don't have the facilities. They don't have the people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what they've been doing over the past few years is building a bike that is modular, essentially. So parts from a 2022 bike will fit a 2021 bike. Parts from a 2021 bike will fit a 2019 bike. So what it means next year for Bastianini is that he won't be given a 2021 bike at the start of the season and then told, there's your bike for the year. Enjoy it. We'll see you at the end of the season the way that Yamaha did with Franco Morbidelli this year. When they build something that works on the factory bike, they'll build two more of it and send them over to his garage and they will be plug and play. So the engine will remain the same. The chassis will remain the same, but every other component on the bike is designed to be switchable. Uh, So he will start the season next year on a late spec 2021 bike the sort of the last bike uh that miller and and bagnaya will ride in it in reality they will probably simply wheel miller's bike from miller's garage into bagnaya's garage at the first test because that's what has always been done and he will get continual upgrades over the season even if they can't give him a new bike that has every possibility of meaning that come the start of the season in particular, whenever he's got a bike with years full of data, uh, you know, he's going to go to Qatar for the opening race. He's going to have a bike that is raced there for two races with all of that data from the double header at the start of the season. And he's going to start the season really, really, really strongly. And I, I don't think that having an old bike, whenever it's, whenever it's an old bike, that's only three months old as opposed to the machine he's on at the minute that's a 2019 bike I don't think it's going to be that much of a hindrance to him next season I think your salient words there Simon were you know this isn't I've never heard this before that modular approach that kind of plug and play I'm not demeaning the the, the project here a lego factor of it'll just go in it will fit it's universal that that'll get that space there will fit the shocker that space there will fit the the fuel pump housing or whatever uh, that that's really interesting to hear and that's a lesson for us in the press office upstairs as i call it to stop calling things oh it's a 2019 bike and it is and because as you said it used to be there you go let us know if you need any parts because you've crashed it see you in uh, on the on the sunday night after valencia when we'll ha- when we'll have it back um the the other thing is it's all about the rider as well. Ducati's talent pool is brimful at the moment. KTM have been pioneers of it. Red Bull did it on four wheels, of course. BMW were the people who started it way back in the 70s. 
Yamaha had a great big talent pool, but they've actually lost it in MotoGP for the moment. And Honda have got nothing. In those four, Ducati, KTM, Yamaha and Honda that I've said, is that a fair assessment about Honda? What's your take, Simon? I think Honda have more than Yamaha. Uh, I see the next Honda rider, the next Honda MotoGP rider uh, that I see right now is Ayagura because they have that that Asia Talent Cup program, that Honda Talent team that they've developed him through mo from Red Bull Rookie, or from Asia Talent Cup, sorry, uh, through into Moto3 and now into Moto2 where he's just starting to show his colours in Moto2. Uh, another season there, and you would be really, really worried if you were attacking Akagami. Uh, so I, I think that they have some sort of a system. Yamaha are much more in the back foot, which is why it's really interesting to hear this weekend some rumours about what they're doing. And it's looking like next year there will be not one but two Yamaha-backed, to some extent, Moto2 teams. Uh, they are collaborating, they're increasing their collaboration with Valentino Rossi's Moto2 team, which is bizarre considering he's becoming a Ducati MotoGP team boss, and Ducati are talking about how great it is having a Moto2 team in the form of Valentino. But there'll always be seats to fight over. And then, similarly, what we've heard this weekend is that the way, the same way that Michael Laverty has bought out the Patronus Moto3 team to create a British talent program in Moto3, the Patronus Moto2 team is going to be bought out by a, a, some sort of a collaboration between Rossi and Yamaha. Now, they already run a team in the Spanish Moto2 Championship under the, the Master Camp brand, which is their program where they take mainly Asian kids and give them like a, a two-week crash course in being a VR46 Academy rider, and then they race in the Spanish Championship. They have a team in CV that is run by uh, a member of the Brivio family and a member of the Jarvis family, believe it or not. And it looks like they're going to expand into World Championship Moto2 next year as a bit of a Yamaha uh, program. The two writers I've heard mentioned with that, I can't remember either of their names because it's a Monday morning and I haven't had enough coffee. One of them is the Thai kid that's already writing for them in CEV. And the other is a Spanish kid who, oh, and I can't remember his name. He's racing for Yamaha and World Supersport. He was the next big thing in, on, in Red Bull Rookies until he essentially got kicked out of Red Bull Rookies for a few of his family members being a little bit too aggressive in the box. Uh, and he's found his way through Supersport as part of the Yamaha family and it looks like they're Moto2 bound next year. That's good to hear, but that's too far away. I, I suppose the way I was looking at it was a bit more closer to MotoGP like now that Honda have got not a lot. That's the way I was looking at it. Uh, your knowledge is far more in-depth about what you've just said, Moto2 and Aragura and such like. But I just think at the moment, you know, that interchangeability, not just of the parts of Ducati, but the the Miller, the Bagnaia, the Bastagnini and the Martin is just gold. Yeah, they have hit upon a winning structure there. When, when you have, you know, someone pointed out yesterday, it's crazy. So... Every spec of machinery, not every bike, but every spec of bike on the grid has now been in the podium this year. 
three of those come from Ducati. <laughs> you know, they, they, every bike that they have is a podium contender now. Um, and, and with the exception, unfortunately, of Luca Marini right now, they have five riders who you could potentially see winning a race out of six. Well, let's see how that one all uh, all pans out with Ducati's uh, structure technically as to how they're going to spec their bikes up for next year and beyond. Reigning world champion Juan Mir's race in Misano was good, but it had that kick in the teeth at the very last quarter when he exceeded track limits. We saw the replay on the slow-mo. You wouldn't have got it with the naked eye. Uh, technology is not the rider's friends at times for this uh, exceeding track limits thing. Um, it's binary. He was over the line, but whew, that's the way I look at it. What's your opinion, you guys? Um, I, I said to someone, someone was complaining to me on social media over the weekend about track limits, and the point I made to them was that I don't like it, but I prefer it to the alternative. And I linked them to the video of Taz McKenzie's huge crash at Cadwell BSB when he ran the back wheel onto the grass and high-sided himself literally into a lake. Um, yeah, it's not perfect, but it's better than having grass there. It's the least worst, as the Honourable Sir Julian exactly. Ryder once said. Uh, his, uh, exactly. He says his title defence is over. He was quite scathing about it. I just sensed that the words that you'd written up weren't good uh, not not your words but the way he was saying it he wasn't a happy camp in there uh, it's it's weird it's just it's been a strange season because if i were in in joanne's position then i would have been speaking in those tones for most of the season because i think it was obvious pretty early on that the this year suzuki was not as competitive as last year suzuki probably because it's not enough of a departure from last year suzuki uh Honestly, again, going back to what we said in the previous pod, because this race didn't didn't really change anything in that regard. When did we see a Suzuki this year not just win, they haven't, but properly fight for the win, maybe once or twice, if that. Um, so the Suzuki situation, I think, was, was on perfect display at, at Misano. Uh, Mir qualified not as well as he wanted to because of some mishap where he got called into the pits by mistake uh he fought through a bit conservatively ended up in the in the top five in the end uh his his race performance was pretty decent but th these are not results that win the championship rins uh pushed really hard right away by the sounds of it just laid it out on the table and had another crash, which he described as the same kind of crash as the, the four ones that I had consecutively, which in, in, in his terms means it's a crash where it feels like I'm braking normally, but the bike just goes, which normally at the same spot as the previous lap, and the bike just goes, which I think, I think tells me that Alex Rins has spent much of the season at or past the limit of reasonable grip, whereas Mir is nearer nearer to reason but that pace is not enough to run at the front so it's those sort of two approaches and Mir, Mir I think has had a, a great season I think he has from what we can see I think he has every right to be unhappy with how it played out 
maybe this would have been okay for a third MotoGP season for any other rider because it's it's still you know it's still a decent season. He's showing showing good results and he is part of one of the smaller manufacturers in MotoGP. But when you're a reigning champion, this must be so so hard to swallow. He is third in the championship. Let us not forget. We don't want to bash him too much. It's just as you say. It's the frustration of of of, of touching the heights and cresting the top of Everest and then oh, you can't even get to base camp anymore um, that's the frustration isn't it it's the old story what you've never had you never missed but he had it so yeah it, how long is his deal at Suzuki for Simon until the end of next season till the end of 2022 and from what I've heard he's already putting out some feelers here and there see what's around um, unfortunately for him it's going to be a difficult year to find something else um <clears throat> Yamaha's Yamaha's new contract with Franco Morbidelli until the end of twenty twenty three probably scuppered his best chances of finding his way onto a really competitive bike. Um, and then the the question I guess kind of becomes: there is one brand that will be interested in him, but do you want to become the guy that takes the risk at Repsol Honda? Uh, by the way, I think the the Yamaha thing goes some way to answering the previous question posed by by toby which is whether yamaha has a an an upcoming talent problem it does but clearly it's not as big a concern when you have a rider who is still super young leading the championship and leading the way in MotoGP. clearly otherwise they would be hunting for joanne mir too which they 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 have basically cut off their path there through signing Morbidelli through to 2023, which means, as it stands, at least as far as the factory team is concerned, they are okay pinning their hopes on on Quartararo and trusting that Morbidelli can get somewhere near to his pre-injury, a pre pre-surgery form, basically. I suppose just going on from that, Val, and going on from what I said about the the pool of riders that each manufacturer has got. Sure, Yamaha have got a young rider in the shape of Quartararo, and he's going to win the championship, and such like. But see what happened to Repsol Honda last year with Marc Marquez. They lost the one and they ended up nowhere. It's, 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 it, yes, in car racing, oh, you know, they've got, they've got a pool of drivers and they can move them around as Red Bull do between uh, Toro Rosso, uh, AlphaTauri now and the big team. Riders, uh, drivers in Formula One don't get injured. The propensity for them to get injured in on a bike, of course, is massive. So there's just no safety net, I think, at the moment. Simon? Uh, this is something we'll come on to, I think, later in the pod, whenever we talk about what's going on at Patronus Yamaha. But uh, it's interesting that it now sounds like the second seat that is still officially to be filled there won't automatically go to Darren Bender the way we thought it would, and that Yamaha are suddenly having a lot more say in who goes there. Yep. I should also note to the to the previous thing, you are completely right, and maybe it is it it is a risk to put all of your eggs in in one rider's basket, if you will. It is maybe a bit hubris. It is worth mentioning that Fabio crashes a lot less than Marcus does. Mark is sort of Mark, Mark spends half his time on the track on the asphalt, whereas Fabio, unless he's really pushing at the end of qualifying, is normally pretty automatic when it comes to finishing all his laps and staying on the bike. Yamaha riders in general are good at staying on the bike unless they're late career Valentino Rossi. The rest of them, excellent at staying on the bike, and Fabio in particular is is very reliable when it comes to that. But yes, it's 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 hubris. Maybe it could it could bite them going forward. I agree. 
Johan Zarco said that he's been struggling with arm pump over the last, particularly over the last couple of races, Aragon and Mizano, and particularly the right-handers have been worse for him. He's going to go for surgery, similar kind of surgery to uh, do the arm pump, uh, relieve it that Quattararo had. It's almost a, a keyhole operation, so it's not a frightening thing that we were used to have, uh, the riders used to have to broach than it was in the old days. Yeah, it should be should be relatively minor uh, that operation. It's it, like you say, it's keyhole now. Um, this new surgeon in France that Quadraro found, I think that while he's struggling with arm pump, at some tracks, I don't think that's what went wrong with Zarco on Sunday. I think what we saw on Sunday was one of those races where you make an error and it forces another and it forces another and it forces another, and suddenly you qualified in fifth in your twelfth. Um, he fluffed the start a little bit. He said as much afterwards. And then because he was stressing to try and catch up, having fluffed the start, he fluffed turn one, ran straight on, got a long lap penalty for it, and then suddenly find himself in no man's land in 12th with the leading group long gone. And I, I, I you know, you don't, you don't mess up your start because you're struggling with arm pump. I think that he just, he just had a, a little bit of a brain fart and ended up where he was. He is quite, emotional but not in an arm waving way now he might have been at ktm with the tv moment but he can be at up uphill down dale is that a fair assessment to take of him yeah it's something he's got better with but it is a thing um occasionally i think he he perhaps isn't i don't know maybe it's because he's a little bit older we kind of expect him to have gotten rid of all of those tendencies that older riders tend to have gotten rid of, but maybe it's because he hasn't been a MotoGP rider all that long that some of them still creep in now and then. I don't know. But, yeah, he, he has his days. He has his days. I think in Zarko's position, you'd have to be an absolute mental giant to not be bothered by what's going on on the other side of the garage now that, you know, obviously Jorge Martin's ever-increasing form, even though he did drop it at, at turn 14 in this race, so that maybe helps a little bit. But still, he's now probably cut off Johan's only only route into the factory team that you could have imagined. Johan says this doesn't bother him. I, I have no reason not to take him at his word, but it seems it seems strange, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's feeling a bit of extra pressure from, from Martin's quick developments, and also maybe what's going on further further in the Avincia team with Bastianini and stuff like that. The the Zarco's place in the Ducati team it, it's not so obvious what the long term plan is for him. Especially if, for instance, that role of the experienced rider ends up going to like Jack Miller down the line instead or something like that. Maverick Vinales had fallen out with the Monster Yamaha team this year and he did his he, he did his second Grand Prix with Aprilia at the weekend, uh, winner of one of the two Mizano races 12 months ago. Should we be impressed with him being quickest on Friday with those conditions? Or did he just do a typical Mav and make a bit of a mess of the first lap once we got to Sunday? I think we should be more impressed with what he did on Sunday than what he did on Friday, uh, to be perfectly honest. I think he was fastest on Friday because he kind of 
He didn't intend to be fastest on Friday. He was fastest on Friday with 10 minutes left on FP1 when it rained, and then it rained for the rest of the day. He he didn't intend to be there. He just happened to be quickest when the rain came. Uh, so that wasn't, a, you know, a time attack or anything like it. It was just circumstance. But what he did on Sunday was, was genuinely impressive. Um, he's had one race, a handful of days testing on that bike. I know those days of testing have been at Misano, fair enough. But if that's an indicator of what he's going to be like when he gets a bit more experience on the bike, then, you know, things things are going to get good for him. At the end of the day, 13th, without double-checking it, I'm, I'm going off my top of my head here, but I'd imagine... 13th in a dry race with that many finishers is probably the best result that bike has had since Bradley Smith was on it. Um, it's a, it's a, you know, it's not a terrible result. It's only five places behind Aleish, who's been in podium contention the last two races. Um, yeah, I, I think that that he should leave here absolutely full of promise about what's going to come next. And what comes next is two days of testing at Mizano, another race to learn experience, and then we're coming back to Mizano. So let's see what happens then. Fair point, fair point. Simon, to be fair, is talking about the number two bike in that position, in 13th position. Only yeah. six yeah. seconds he finished behind Aleish. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's it depends on how how what exactly his development has looked like and how how much we should expect him to improve in the future but i i do i also have felt that similar thing to simon not only is is six seconds behind Aleish pretty reasonably impressive but it's also even going back beyond the bradley smith time beyond the andrea Iannone season beyond the uh scott redding and, and sam lowe seasons that second aprilia usually is not that close to a leash. And it, it is clear already that Maverick's ceiling on this bike is is higher than that of the previous occupants of this bike. So certainly I don't expect him to be to be regretting this move anytime soon. And going by the fact that he was so cheerful after finishing 13th, he was really, really cheerful. Clearly he's enjoying this challenge, even if the results will take a while to come anywhere near what he would have expected on the Yamaha. Still, I, I, this looks good. It still looks good, and it's it's going to be fun to follow. Two weeks ago, there was great weather here in the UK, and my wife and I said, it's such a good day. Why don't we pick up our little lad from school at three o'clock and go to the beach? The beach is at Western Supermare. It was just a bit of fun to go there. We bumped into Scott Redding, walking down the beach with his new fiance. <laughs> And my wife said, isn't that Scott Redding over there? And sure enough, it was. So we had a long chat, sat on the beach watching the tide come in. We touched on the number two uh, Aprilia situation, particularly when he was there. And of course, it was a reasonably short conversation, but there was lots of head shaking and yeah. So how it's changed, I suppose that's a, a positive that they need to look at. Um, Valentino, Rossi, uh, home race, of course, that picture on the cooling down lap with him stood on the stood on the tire wall he was in front of his fans uh as i've said before in this podcast it's Mizano 1 and Mizano 2 but it's actually a double bubble chance for him to say goodbye to his italian fans now that we know that he's in his farewell season a great line uh on, with the italian press after the race i leave moto gp in good hands with bagnaia and morbidelli for Italy. I thought that was a good line. He really is handing over the baton. Danny Madgen's just a 
the, a weird thought I had is given that there was doubt over whether Rossi would try to stick it out for another year. Imagine if the news we got in the summer was that he's going to do another year and then this string of results followed. He's just, he's not competitive right now. This is, if this wasn't a farewell tour, if this was a proper, I still have another year, I'm still pushing for results, this would have been really, really depressing. And this way it's, it's not quite depressing, but it's still, it's hard to take it seriously in a, in a sporting sense because ultimately I think only like a long lap penalty from for Dovi meant that Dovi wasn't able to challenge Valentino so there was a non-zero chance of Dovi beating Valentino on the on the M1 first time out on an older M1 uh but there's lots of people that I bumped into at Silverstone who were like, yeah, I, I had to bring my little son just to say he saw Valentino Rossi. You know, it's like I saw Pele play or I saw Muhammad Ali or whoever it may be as a bastion of sport. Uh, there's a lot of that going on. The shoulders have gone down. He decided in the summer what he decided and that's that. And he's just, ah, I, I think it's just, it's fine. We all know what's, what the result's going to be. It's just fine. What are his kind of debriefs like, Simon? What are the media chit-chats like? Is, they, is he just sort of batting off the questions or... Ugh. He's, he's kind of... Uh, he sounds enlarged like a man that has kind of accepted his fate. He knows what he's doing at the minute. Um, he's not overly fussed about... Uh, the results, because they're not really unexpected anymore and people don't really push them and, you know, why they're unexpected because at the end of the day, what is there to say? We all know what's going wrong. Um, the only time I've seen him sort of get any way sharp over the last few months is generally when he was asked about his own team and what's happening with the whole sponsorship situation there. Um which, you know, someone asked him about it at the weekend and he shot them down right away. But this is not, you know, this is not for me to be talking about. I'm getting quite annoyed that people keep talking to or keep asking me about it, which I thought was a bit, yeah, a bit cheeky, really, considering it's his VR46 on the side of the bike and no one else from the team management is willing to talk to the media. So um, I don't think he can get too uptight about that. Talking about teams, we had the announcement in the run-up to the weekend that Patronus SRT will now be RNF MotoGP, run by Razlan Razali, who's been part of the SRT team. Simon, you're the expert on this. You worked for them for a bit. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I will say it's not a rebranding of the team. It's an entirely new structure that's taking over the grid spot and the satellite Yamaha contract and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it sounds from the people I've been talking to, like you say, some of whom I used to work with, that there's a really strange power play going on in that squad at the minute. It all sounds a bit Game of Thrones. Um, there are people trying to undermine people. There are people trying to keep things from people. Um, you know, I've got like, and at the, the, the bottom of it all, I've got mechanics and, and truck drivers coming to me and saying, do we have a job next year? What's happening in the team? You know more than we do. Um, it's all messy. Uh, it sounds like Rosale has played his cards with Dorna backing to kind of acquire the grid entries for next season from his current employer, Sepang International Circuit. And 
it sounds like Johan Stigafeld, who is the current team director and kind of the man that makes all the nuts and bolts happen, is out. Um, and I'm not entirely sure that he knew that he was out until that announcement arrived. But Stiggy, doesn't he own the trucks and pays the mechanics? Hasn't he got that kind of basic he, he skeletal pays, infrastructure? He he pays the mechanics. The, the wages come from him. But I think, without knowing exactly, I'm pretty sure that pretty much everything else is leased. Uh, and at the end of the day, if you own the infrastructure of a MotoGP team and nothing else that you need to be a MotoGP team and someone comes to you and says, look, just sell it all to me, you're better to just make your money where you can, aren't you? Even if you don't particularly like the person that's trying to buy it off you. Well, it's got the Queen's head on one side to take it. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, but just to confirm to to our listeners, this RNF Rasley team will be the second Yamaha team next year. I think yes. Two questions there. One is, so the the new RNF structure, that's crucial to there suddenly being uncertainty over the, the second ride, right? Because, you know, part of the Darren Binder contractual situation uh, comes into play there. And the second one is, nobody still knows what RNF yeah. stands for. My latest, yeah, my latest and best guess is Russian Federation, which probably not, but <laughs> okay. That'll be a no, Val. Uh, so to answer your second question, it sounds like it's something personal to Razlan that I think it's like oh. the name of his kids, something like that. Uh, uh, regarding the team structure, yes. Um, What's the correct way to word this? It has thrown some uncertainty into the Bender situation because it seems like he was contracted to Stigafelt's side of the operation. So without that side of the operation existing anymore, then uh, he doesn't have a contract anymore. But, to be perfectly honest, it sounds like there's not much beyond a team name to the Rosali side of the structure at the minute either. Uh, they are scrabbling to put together everything you need to go racing, including a title sponsor. Because it looked like the with you thing was kind of ready to go. And now it looks like they might also be talking to Valentino Rossi and that nothing is signed. Because hmm. as you pointed out in your article on the website, Simon, the announcement came from Dorna rather than RNF. Well, it, there is no RNF structure to announce it. And it couldn't come from the current team because they didn't know anything about it. And obviously, it was intended that they weren't to find anything about it until it was announced. Ah, it's not good for the mechanics as well, because there's some good people in that team. And the, they, they've got livelihoods. And yeah, you know, right. here we are now on the 20th of September. They should have been signed up at the end of July. A lot of the other teams, they sign even earlier than that. Uh, you know, these mechanics, they, they're not, we say in England, uh, in the UK, P-A-Y-E. They're not employed on a endless kind of deal they're on an annual contract they're freelancers essentially they will invoice the team as such after every race month quarter whatever it may be um so these guys are are uncertain and that nagging away in the back of your mind and it's now the middle of september nearly october and then you're going to miss all the buses and you're going to end up uh you know driving the signage truck for Dorna at three Grand Prix is is not the income that they're going to be looking for. Well, and you'd, you'd assume this the mechanics, a lot of them are ex-Mark VDS or somehow involved with Mark VDS, yeah. And yeah, they are. So they've already been at the center of one weird sort of 
power play team uncertainty situation just uh, just a few years ago, and now we're, we're we're doing it all again. So I doubly sorry for mm. them. Mm. That's a horrible feeling, and you know you bump into the the guys Simon. I bumped into them at. Silverstone and they're good people they're good people and they they deserve to have some stability so uh, let's let keep our fingers crossed and hope that it all it all shakes out um because as as we've all said it's it's late in the day it's late in the day going on from talking about Patronus SRT Franco Morbidelli came back but not into the Patronus Yamaha squad he went into the works Yamaha squad how was his return and how far away from full fitness do you think he is now? He is a long, long way away from full fitness. Um, he kind of admitted afterwards. First of all, he admitted that um, after warm-up, he didn't know if he'd be able to race because he was in quite a bit of pain and discomfort. But he admitted as well that, that essentially he he isn't ready to be back but he knows that he can't go any longer without not riding a MotoGP bike and that he he had to grin and bear it to get back on the machine before the end of the season and, and just sort of try and retain some sort of a semblance of being able to ride a MotoGP bike. You know, it, it was quite telling that someone asked him on, at the end of day one uh, where the differences were in the 21 bike and the 2019 bike. And he said, I have no idea. I feel like I've been put back in a spaceship and I just, it's so fast. I can't even tell. Wow. That that's, that's quite something to hear from him. Um, next up was a return from Andrea Davizioso. How was, how was his weekend? I mean, as you said, he, he struggled a little bit, but I think that spaceship comment, Simon sums it up. If you've not been on a quick bike for too long, I so I've had a bit of a change of heart here because all weekend I watched Dovi and what he was doing and thought, yeah, that's kind of what we expected from him. It's it's roughly what we thought would happen. And then I started comparing him to what Jake Dixon has done on the bike over the last few weeks, and arguably didn't set the world on fire. You know, Dixon was closer. Dixon's gap to the leaders was faster in Q two in Q one. Um, he was as close over the course of the race. Um, and it, it's just, it's very telling that while certain other people who've missed time in the bike have spent the interim doing things like riding superbikes to try and be fast, Dovi has literally fully committed to the motocross thing and and is maybe a little bit less prepared than he should have been for someone that was always intending for this to happen in some team and for him to find a way back in in some regard. And it, it makes me now, um, you know, we, we heard some lap times from his Aprilia tests that were way off the pace, and it makes me think that, yeah, maybe that wasn't so far away from the truth. I actually sort of did a a reverse of that, Simon, in that I, I looked at his times in, in practice and was sort of unimpressed or at least not not particularly excited but then the the end result in the race and the fact that you know yeah it was five seconds off Oliveira but the the long lap penalty obviously contributed to that the, the more I think about it you are right he has focused on the motocross and he is not unlike Jake Dixon who has been racing week in week out WCO hasn't really kept in circuit racing shape but he's come back and he's he is already basically competitive. That's I found that reasonably impressive. I found that okay. I think 
he will at the very least prove an instant upgrade on on Rossi and I think before the end of the season I would expect him to to leapfrog Valentino uh that's probably not enough to to justify the whole thing but I still have faith that this might this might pan out quite well and it's that faith has been made a lot stronger by this weekend because I I did expect him to be further off, not because he's a bad MotoGP rider, he's a very good MotoGP rider, but because of how hard it seems to be to return back to racing pace. It was hard for KTM to come back to Misano after their results uh, last year. Uh, 12 months ago, we had Paul Espargaro in third position in one of the Misano races. He did a race time of 42 minutes. Yesterday, we had Brad Binder Ninth across the line, 42 minutes and four seconds. But the killer is that Petrucci was back in 16th position and Miguel Oliveira back in 20th position. And yet they've been testing there a lot. I mean, well, yeah. we know Binder gets let out of the cage on a Sunday and all of that. Uh, Lucky Rona fell off, unfortunately. Can't be good there at the moment. What's the vibe? Weirdly, they haven't a clue. They spent all weekend saying we're 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 nothing feels wrong with the bike. We're just not fast enough, and that is a really really shocking place to hear KTM in. Um, <clears throat> I think on top of that, because we, we we saw on Sunday that there is a certain amount of that that can be ruled around by just being Brad Binder, um, and doing what he does on Sundays. But I think on top of the KTM issues, there's obviously something else going on in the Miguel Oliveira camp. Um, that we we can't quite get to the bottom of because the guy was a race winner a few rounds ago, and since and a the brilliant break, winner as well, Simon. And, and since the summer break, he's just obviously he got hurt in Austria, but he keeps saying no, no, the injury's not the reason. The injury's not the reason. What is? Because it's not a good I look. A, I had a, I would call it a not so strange but an interesting exchange with Miguel. I think. Would have been Friday. He's not had a, a good week in all throughout, so it would have been applicable, I think, any day really. But on, on on Friday, you know, he keeps insisting that it's just this this poor recent run of form is just a result of small, seemingly coincidental, individual factors that are affecting him at a at a given point in a given weekend. I asked whether we were just we were reading into the the run of form too much, and it was a string of coincidences to which he sort of. Uh, it was like, well, I don't want to like allege anything, make any conspiracy theories, anything like that, which is not not what I was hinting at. What I was was trying to to get to is, it's just the trend is unmistakable. Is it? Can it really be a, a string of coincidences? And I can't, I genuinely can't tell if he does or doesn't believe that. But what he does reliably maintain is that it's not the injury. But if it's not the injury, then like. This is weird, right? This would be a, a hell of a string of, of coincidences if it's just the, the form was so good before the summer break and it's cratered after the summer break. Something has to have changed, I think, just speaking from a mathematical probability point of view. What it is, who, who knows? Maybe they don't know. Maybe Miguel himself doesn't know. Maybe he has some sort of theories that he's not quite interested in airing out just yet before he has a better idea. But it can't be a a pleasant situation to be in. If, if the injury isn't the problem and if the bike isn't the problem, 
which, based on his teammates' results, doesn't... And actually based on Nico Lacona's results, because he was on for a half-decent result on Sunday as well until he crashed. Based on that, you got to say, KTM definitely picked the right guy whose contract to extend when they extended Binders and not Oliveras. Because right now, you know, it's weird how quickly we've gone from thinking one of them was the sure bet to thinking the other one is. Because it's just mm. not there. Mm. It's changed a lot, as you say. The yeah, pendulum's you, the other way. I think we, we we should be careful with making, you know, obviously because in, in, in three or four races it might do a, a complete 180 back. And clearly Miguel has at least shown the outright. I think his MotoGP race wins have been more convincing than Brad's, if that makes any yeah, sense. No, they have been fair. more indicative of, like, front-running, consistent front-running potential. But also with Brad, there's the weird problem that he he really shows up on Sunday. Like yeah. he's excellent on Sunday, but the rest of the weekend he he's not there. If Brad and Bender, it's, 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 if Brad Bender and Juan Mir learned how to qualify, they'd win every championship for the next ten years between. Them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's fair. That's basically fair. I think. There are still four races to go in 2021 with Cota in Austin, Texas, back to Misano here on October the 24th, then Portugal and Valencia. But do keep in touch with the-race.com. We've got news and we've got other podcasts as well. Our latest Formula One podcast is looking at the Volkswagen Group, potentially closing in on F1 with Red Bull. We've got Brigback V10s talking about historic Formula One stuff. You've got us guys talking about MotoGP. We've got Formula E, we've got eSports, and we've got an IndyCar podcast as well, all on the-race.com. In the meantime, from Valentin, from Simon and myself, Toby, enjoy your week, and we look forward to speaking to you all after Texas on the first weekend of October. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.